With a father who was a cardiologist, he witnessed the sacrifices, joys, and impact of being a physician. He knew before the start of medical school, sports medicine was for him. He was a kinesthetic, hands-on learner. When deciding where to go to medical school, he discovered osteopathic medicine and quickly identified with the philosophy. Osteopathic manipulative medicine quickly became his favorite class, and he took advantage of every opportunity to treat his family and friends. Today, he is a sports medicine fellowship director, a USA track and field doctor, and team physician at a Division I school. He cannot imagine his practice without OMT. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Gregory Hahn, DO. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Podcast, where we share clinical experiences and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. Our guest today is a graduate in neuromuscular skeletal medicine from Northeast Regional Medical Center in Kirksville, Missouri in 2014. He completed a primary care sports medicine fellowship at Larkin Community Hospital Institute for Non-Surgical Orthopedics in 2015. He currently works at Campbell University School of Osteopathic Medicine, where he is an assistant professor of osteopathic manipulative medicine and the year two OMM course director. He is also faculty at the ONMM residency program and the program director of the Sports Medicine Fellowship at Campbell University. He is also the Campbell University team physician. He's a member of the International Association for Regenerative Therapy, USA Track and Field, Wilderness Medical Society, and American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, to name a few. He has been the head team physician for USA Track and Field International Association of Ultra Runners at the 24-hour World Championship races throughout Europe and the United States. He has presented at medical conferences on topics such as common knee pain conditions, the osteopathic approach to the runner, osteopathic approach to concussion and post-concussive syndromes. He has been the co-author in numerous journal publications, one example being Enhanced Chondrogenesis and Went Signaling in PTH-Treated Fractures. Thank you for joining us on the podcast this evening, Dr. Gregory Hahn. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. I know being the team physician at, uh, at a D1 school, um, you're probably very, very busy with sports. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share your, your journey to a career in OMM and sports medicine. Yeah, no worries. And so before we dive into the topic, if we could get to know you a little bit as a person, if you uh, wouldn't mind sharing with us some of your interests outside of your medical practice. Yeah, so um, uh, I am uh, like to be active and outdoorsy and that sort of thing. Um, I've got two kiddos, uh, a wife that I met in, in medical school who's also uh, a DO who practices in family medicine. You know, we... we try to get out and about uh we've been thinking about taking our kids who are uh three and uh three years old and six months old out camping and that sort of thing um uh enjoy watching sports enjoy playing sports things like that so yeah so you're you're in north carolina so and i'm from i'm from the west okay um so what what is the outdoor life like there in north carolina it it's uh 
it, it can vary a little bit depending on what part of North Carolina you're in. You know, it's uh, being on the East Coast. It's it's one of those states that, you know, where where the school is at here, um, you know, two, three hours to the east. You're on the coast swimming, surfing, scuba diving, stuff like that. Um, two, three hours to the west, you're in the Smoky Mountains. So a lot of hiking and, and outdoorsiness and, and things like that. Um, so it, it can be pretty diverse um, as the state goes. Um, yeah, nice. It's not a bad place to live. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. I was just in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I could see the Smoky Mountains from Lookout Mountain, but yeah. I wasn't able to visit. So, yeah, yeah, heard great things about it, though. You have That's to great. add it to your list. Yes, it, it's already there. Mm-hmm. So what uh, what about Dr. Han, a a book recommendation for our audience? You know, the, I was thinking about that. I, I can't say that <laughs> how busy things are and being a dad recently that I've I've done a lot of reading besides either medical books or children's books at this point. <laughs> but uh, but one thing that has come up in the last year or so, you know, I not not to get super political or anything, but there have been a lot of like book bannings and things like that. And I, I remember being real distressed when I saw that one of my favorite books um, that I read in college called Mouse, M-A-U-S, um, was on a, a book banning list. It's, it's a um, graphic novel um, told by the uh, written by the son of a Holocaust survivor um, that hmm. tells his father's story. Um, and, and yeah, I, it, it, it made a, a large impact on me when I was in college and I was distressed to see that it was on a, a banned book list. So um, that is one that I'd definitely recommend to people. Um, yeah. I, I can't imagine people uh, thinking that it wasn't educational. But yeah, I mean, what kind of impact did the book have on you or how did it impact you? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it. it, it I, I read it as a part of a seminar that was looking at uh, focused on literature that came out of the Holocaust. Um, and so it, it again, you know, sort of told one man's story um, it, as a part of the course, several other um, literature sources, you know, told other people's stories. So it, it, it's not super unique in that sense, but it, as a graphic novel, um, it, it had an impact on me as as I had kind of grown up reading comic books and things like that. And, and to see, to, to read a story that had such a, a somber, solemn um, tone to it on as serious a topic as the Holocaust, um, when, when one might be used to uh, plucky, funny cartoons in, you know, if you still read the Saturday morning funnies in the, in the paper or something like that, it, it was a, um, a, a source that uh, was just very moving and, uh, and poignant with the graphics associated with the text. Um, mm-hmm. And again, a, a, a format that was pr- pr- prior to that, mostly for uh, more uh, leisurely fun kind of topics rather than, again, the solemn mood of the Holocaust. So, yeah, sure. Well, that's a great recommendation. Yeah. Hopefully. So it was on a book band, but it can still be oh, yes. acquired. I, I think, again, it was 
it, it was on a, a list of books that were to be banned at like a, a high school level or something like that. Oh, which, huh. again, I, you know, uh, I, I'd encourage anybody to read it, even even people, sure. you know, uh, at, at a high school or younger level. So, yeah, absolutely. What about a movie or documentary recommendation? Um, movies, I again, I can't say I've watched one in in a theater or anything <laughs> since the yeah. uh, since the pandemic began. Um, we've uh, we've tried to keep our kids pretty pretty isolated since all that uh, started, and with their ages, I can't say I've been to the theaters in a long time. I'm I'm a big Marvel fan, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. They they haven't put out something yet that I've really hated. Uh, I'm a big Star Wars fan, so you know the the expanded Star Wars universe that they've been working on. I've I've been a big fan of, so uh, I find it hard to go wrong with any of those. But I, admittedly, I'm a biased super fan, so <laughs> I got you. You're not going to go watch the. I guess Black Adam is DC, isn't it? It is. I'm. I am. I. I find the Marvel things to be done better. I am uh, very excited about the Black Adam. Uh, movie as well (laughs) again with the kiddos i can't say i'll see any of this in the theater but when it (laughs) comes out on some sort of streaming service i'm going to be happy to watch that as well absolutely that's great you need a you need a good a pastime outside of medicine and with a busy family i'm sure yeah it sounds like you're changing a lot of diapers these days it, there is much more uh, <laughs> and and much more than that. <laughs> yeah, much more than I wish I had to change. But yeah, my uh, quite honestly, my wife takes care of the lion's share of it. But uh, but I have changed a diaper or two in the last. <laughs> nice. So let's let's dive into our topic. And I'm, I'm going to dial the clock back a little bit. Mm-hmm. How how did you originally decide to go to medical school and why? Sure. So I, I grew up, my father was a cardiologist. So, um, and my, I have an aunt who's an anesthesiologist, um, some, some, uh, nurses in the family, that sort of thing. So I, I'd been exposed to healthcare growing up. Um, you know, I, there's good and bad to that. I, I saw the impact that my dad had on people. We grew up in, in not the, not a super small town, but Fort Myers, Florida, it's, it's been on people's, uh, thoughts recently because of the recent hurricane Ian. But, um, mm-hmm. I, it, when I was growing up, there was a much smaller, uh, kind of feel to it. And we'd run into my dad's patients in, um, in, uh, restaurants or in grocery stores. And they'd tell him, you know, tell me as we were passing by, you, you know, you know, your dad saved my life. So it, it was apparent to me how much impact uh you know physicians could have on patients even at a young age um when he'd be on call and had to stop by the hospital sometimes we'd have to hang out in the doctor's lounge for him to to do his work and get done before we could go home that sort of thing but um but yeah it was i also saw the toll that it took on his family and you know there's a lot of times he you know were going to work before we woke up in, we were in bed before he came home and that sort of thing as well. So I also saw how, how serious a, a profession it was and how much uh, sacrifice it took as well. So sometimes I say because of my dad, sometimes I say in spite of my dad, I did not <laughs> go into medicine. But, um, but at any rate, I, I, I also knew that um, I didn't necessarily want to be the same type of doctor as my dad did. So um, so I, I knew I was very interested in musculoskeletal pathology even before uh, 
going to medical school. So I, I fiddled with, with the idea of doing some other aspects of healthcare. Yeah, I, I did EMT training back during college and considered uh, going more the route of the paramedic. I, I considered something like physical therapy as a as an option and did some shadowing at some PT clinics and things like that. Um, but I also did a, a fair amount of shadowing in orthopedic offices and, and things and, and the, the, the physician role seemed to appeal to me a little bit more than than some of the other options. Um, and sure. So, so so how did you make the uh, the decision between allopathic and osteopathic medical school was your dad? Was he a DO or was he an MD? He, he is an MD. And, and he, when I started thinking about osteopathic schools, you know, I, I ran it past him and he said, you know, I've, I've got some uh, DO colleagues that do all the things that I do. Um, he, he mentioned the concept of, uh, of the stigma, um, but sort of indicated that, you know, things have changed a little bit as time goes on. And, you know, in, in the end, he sort of motivated me to go to, the best school that I could go to. Um, when I was doing my research, when as I was starting to apply to medical schools, most of my um, friends in, in college um, were applying mainly to MD schools. But at some point, our health professions advising uh, folks uh, mentioned the concept of an osteopathic school to me. And I sort of said, did uh, what I imagine a lot of people do. What's that? And then did my own research. The more, the more I read about it, the more that sounded like me. So, um, it, it sounded like my, like it matched what my own beliefs, value systems, that sort of thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I didn't have much personal exposure to osteopathy at that point. I, I can't say I had a, a DO physician. And, and while I had shadowed a DO before, um, it was a, a, a DO uh, orthopedic surgeon who was in practice with an MD orthopedic surgeon. And again, day to day, they're doing approximately the same things. Um, and so, you know, I, I can't say I had a lot of exposure to uh, osteopathic manipulation at that time. Um, but again, just the, the philosophy of it appealed to me a lot. And so, you know, in my application process that I, I started gravitating more towards the DO schools be, because of that unique philosophy. Um, sure. And, and how did you end up in Kirksville? You ended up at the original osteopathic medical school. Yeah. So of, of the places that I interviewed at, Kirksville was really the one that made me feel the most welcome. Um, and that, that really made an influence or, or had an influence on me during the, the application process and, and interview process. Um, some of the other places that I interviewed um made me feel a lot more like I was trying having to justify my <laughs> existence, my presence. And why <laughs> did I deserve to go to their school? Yeah. Uh, Kirksville made me feel a lot more welcome. Like, like I was wanted um, as opposed to having to prove myself as much. So that, that friendly atmosphere um, did appeal to me. I, I was also coming, I was doing my master's program in Boston um, the years before I went to uh, medical school in Kirksville. And I had, it's a very urban environment, whereas Kirksville is a very rural environment. And I kind of <laughs> liked the, the slower change of pace a little bit compared to the urban environment that I had been in. Um, you know, I tell people now that I've, I'm happy to visit Boston again, but it's a lot, a, a little more urban than what I'm 
uh, interested in at this point. (laughs) Sure, sure. And so you said you were interested in the musculoskeletal system even before applying to medical school, and you identified with the DO philosophy. What was your experience like in day one of OMM lab and lecture? Oh, I, OMM, again, I, I didn't necessarily know that this was going to happen ahead of time, but within the first week or so, OMM was my favorite course in, in medical school. Um, because it's hands-on and I'm a very kinesthetic person, I think it, it appealed to my nature, but also because it's, it's one of the first courses that you can start to apply what you're learning relatively quickly almost immediately and you can start you know practicing um uh treating somatic dysfunction in friends and family like right away whereas a lot of the other courses that you take it's not until maybe your third and fourth year maybe beyond that that you start to see the clinical relevance of some of what you're learning in in some of your other courses some some other courses you might not even see the clinical relevance of them some of the more basic science courses but um but OMM was came a lot more intuitively to me, um, and like I said, with within the first week or so, it was one of my favorite courses. And you know, at some point, I just I, I couldn't get enough of it. I I joined the I mean, at at that point, it was the UAO, the Undergraduate um, Society. At this point, it's called the SAO, but uh, essentially, the student interest groups focusing on OMM. And signed up for everything I could. Did mentor-mentee uh, workshops, evenings with the stars type workshops, and then went to uh, the AAO convocation three out of the first four years of my medical school training to get more exposure to OMM. Uh, the only year I missed it was because it overlapped with a medical mission trip to Nicaragua. So, um, so yeah, I, I immediately... Uh, had strong interest in OMM, not, not necessarily because I had planned on it before, but because it was so appealing, uh, once we started. Sure. And once you got into the third and fourth years of medical school and those, the clinical rotations, did you have many opportunities to use OMT with the patients you were seeing or taking care of, helping to take care of? Yes and no. Like, so Third and fourth years uh, rotations um, I did up in the uh, Michigan, uh, in the Detroit area, uh, Henry Ford Health System. Um, and, and so it, the hospital that was my base hospital for third and fourth year was previously an osteopathic hospital. So it, the culture there was relatively osteopathic compared to um, other hospitals that I've worked at since then. So it was... It was the, that location, that region. It, it, it I, I think I was a little bit blessed to have um, a, an accepting culture and area. Um, I tell our third and fourth year students, medicine, medical training is sometimes that you get out of it what you put into it. And I was also very motivated. So you know, on on my inpatient IM and and surgery rotations, I was frequently offering, um, you know. Uh, uh, to do uh, osteopathic manipulation on those rotations in family medicine, outpatient, I was offering to treat uh, uh, pr- pretty aggressive in a sense. Hopefully, not overbearing and and not <laughs> annoying to any of my preceptors. But uh, OBGYN, you know, that there would be patients coming in in labor that were complaining of back pain, and I 
I'd be more interested in doing OMM than, you know, <laughs> deliveries, but <laughs> <laughs> focused on that for my OB rotations. But, but I, I was always looking for opportunities to practice. Um, and so the, if you, I, I think if you seek them out as, um, uh, enthusiastically as I did, that makes, that creates some opportunities for yourself. Um, that being said, there were, there were times when I didn't necessarily have lots of mentorship in my third and fourth year rotations, the way that I did. And I mean, again, Kirksville, Missouri, the Mecca has many, um, attending level physicians that can guide you, um, to, with what you're struggling with, with whatever, uh, next step you're working towards wherever whatever level of skill you have um in michigan on my third and fourth year rotations i didn't necessarily have people to show me what they would do or, or correct me if i if my technique could be suboptimal um but i did have people that were willing to let me do things so um you know i i was encouraged to a certain extent if not necessarily always uh receiving strong mentorship at that point sure so, so there were attendings that were very excited that you were doing OMT. Did you run into any attendings who maybe didn't understand what OMT was and said, no, I would prefer you don't do that? Yeah, you know, a fair amount. And again, I, I would try not to take that personally or anything and, you know, kind of shrug my shoulders a little bit and say, well next next patient or next time or or maybe i can we can talk about it later on and you know that sort of thing but again some some things more than others um and and some preceptors attendings more than others would be more accepting or encouraging but but for sure i've had to justify what it was i was going to attempt to do particularly for allopathic colleagues that were less familiar with um with the nature of manipulation or or what the goal was for a particular uh patient um things like neck pain back pain headaches are a lot a little easier for people to wrap their heads around what you're treating um you know using omm to uh uh promote tissue healing to, to help with bowel function for post-op ileus, things like that. Sometimes you have to do a little more, uh, justification, if you will. Mm -hmm. Sure. And so at what point, Dr. Han, did you, did the light bulb go off and you decided I am going to go into this residency? I'm going to become an ONMM resident. Yeah. So somewhere between the end of third year and the beginning of fourth year. So I'll, I, you know, I tell people some of, some of this is my fault for just not paying close attention. Somehow I made it through first and second year and just didn't realize that at that point, um, you know, the neuromusculoskeletal medicine, osteopathic manipulative medicine, that it was a residency program, um, you know, and, and I, I tell my advisees at the, the school that I work at now, like so much of this, you kind of learn as you're going. Um, uh, and, and, uh, unfortunately, sometimes that means, uh, you, you arrive a little bit late to the party, so to speak in some cases, but I, I didn't realize until my third year that some of the people that had been teaching me that, that it was a residency specialty option that one could pursue. Um, so once, once, but before I realized that I, again, was 
inclined to be interested in musculoskeletal pathology, I, I thought orthopedics was the thing for me because that's the only thing that I really knew you could treat musculoskeletal pathology, see athletes and things like that. That's, that's all I had really seen before. And it wasn't until doing some rotations, uh, having some people tell me, you know, there is this option you could consider um, that I realized NMM uh, was a specialty that I could apply to. The other thing that really made, well, two other things I'll mention that made a difference for me is one, when I was on certain rotations, for example, family medicine, um, I, for a while I considered PM&R because I had heard, well, you, you could do some musculoskeletal pathology through PM&R. My favorite part about doing those rotations was doing the OMM. And so at, at, at some point in my training, I sort of said, why do anything but your favorite part? Um, not, not to say that family medicine isn't important. It is. And, and not to say that the treatment of, you know, more uh, chronic illnesses, diabetes, hypertension, things like that, cancer screening, like that's all very important. Life, life changing, life saving even. Um, but again, my, my favorite part of the day, my favorite patients to see were the patients that I did OMM on. And, and again, part of me said, why do anything but your favorite part? Um, the other thing that really made, made sense to me and helped me make my decision was that I had seen, I had met various preceptors, mentors, attending physicians that had started doing something like family medicine or internal medicine or, or even PM&R that gradually switched to a practice that focused on OMM. I had never seen anybody do it the other way around. I've never seen someone start primarily focusing on an OMM based practice that then transitioned to a more general primary care. I've only seen it the other way around. So I said, if, if this is what people tend to do as they go through their practices, as they, as they, um, as they progress through life, if this is the direction that they tend to go in, I, I, I might as well start where they're ending up rather than do the same gradual journey um mm -hmm. so yeah so what about so when you're looking at ortho it is a lot of hands-on mm -hmm. you know maybe not as much patient interaction um and pm and r more interaction also hands-on maybe a little more needles involved um but those didn't appease you because there wasn't the OMT component? So for, for orthopedics, um, one of the things that always kind of bothered me, well, and again, not, not to disparage my orthopedic colleagues, I, I, you know, I, I loved being in the ORs. I, I loved uh, fracture care and, and things like that. But there were often, not always, but often patients that... I felt like we're falling through the cracks. Um, you know, a, a lot of musculoskeletal pathology doesn't require surgery. So some, again, some, not all orthopedic surgeons will see like 50 patients a day of which only a few of them will actually require surgery. So again, there, there'd be a lot of patients that, uh, you know, a lot of times the clinical decision-making is, is this, is this patient, is the pathology that, that they have, is, is surgery indicated or is it not indicated? For, for a lot of the non-surgical patients, 
some orthopedists a lot of times won't have a lot to offer them, you know, um, some oral medicines, maybe an injection, um, maybe PT referral, but, but a lot of times it felt like patients were falling through the cracks. And I, I kept having the feeling on some of my rotations that there's, there's more that I could be doing for this patient. And so for a while I, I thought maybe I'd be the crazy orthopedist that had a OMM day you know, one day a week or something like that. But, um, you know, at, at some point I was talking to one of the orthopedic residents on rotation and, and he sort of said, you know, you can only be so uh, great at so many things in life and, and kind of indicated the, the more OMM you do, the less good at surgery you're going to be or the other way around. Um, and so, you know, that was a little disheartening, <laughs> but, uh, but at some point, again, I said, you know, there's, there's all these patients that, I, that, one could help they just might not need surgery and you know kind of gradually shifted to focus on them now and at the same time again i was getting exposure to um uh various mentors um there's a a, a dr goldman up in the uh, novi area of michigan who was primary care sports medicine family medicine primary care sports medicine did a lot of omm in his practice that you know i said oh, oh wait you you can there is another way to to uh, see athletes to to treat people with musculoskeletal complaints that doesn't necessarily involve um, doing orthopedics residency and, and doing surgery. Um, and so uh, for PM&R, you had asked about as well, um, you know, it, it's not that I didn't like PM&R, but again, my, my favorite part was doing OMM. There were things that one uh, learns about focuses on in PMR, a lot of stroke and spinal cord injury and things like that, which again, very important, very uh, gratifying to work with patients. But again, my, my favorite portion was doing OMM. The There's lots of needles in PMR. Um, some of that, the like the EMG nerve conduction studies, um, I'd, I guess I'd rather be doing therapeutic injections if I'm going to stick needles in someone than just the the diagnostics of EMGs and nerve conduction studies. Um, mm -hmm. Sure. And so you you applied for an ONMM residency, and you stayed in Kirksville. Yeah. That, so at that point, I I was interested in the three year programs more than I was in doing something like family medicine and then a plus one year. Because again, why why do anything but your favorite part? Um, there were only about five three-year NMM specialty um, residencies the year that I was applying. So that, you know, it's somewhat competitive, not because there's tons and tons and tons of people who want to do it, but just because there were so few programs. Um, and so again, Kirksville was uh, of, of the places that accepted me. Kirksville was, uh, it has a very strong program. So, um, and I knew I'd get good, good training, good procedural hand skills, um, at Kirksville. Um, and so that's, that's where I matched in the end. So. Sure. And what were some of the big lessons that you learned during your three years in residency at Kirksville? You know, I, I usually tell our, our students that medical school is to kind of teach you the language of medicine so that you can communicate and function in a clinic or a hospital, you, you really learn to be a doctor during your residency in terms of, you know, uh, actually serving patients um, and treating patients. Uh, so much of what I do now comes from how I, how I 
what I learned to do, what I learned from my mentors in, in Kirksville. Um, uh, a lot of times for students going from first, second year into third, fourth year residency in, in, from an OMM specific context, you know, in your, in your first and second year, again, you're, you're learning the basics. Um, but you, but you really don't have any clinical experience you're, you're practicing on each other in many cases, but you're not really seeing patients in third and fourth year. Again, depending on where you go, you may, you, you may be lucky to have mentorship. You may lack mentorship, but you're, you're starting to get a little bit of a taste um, and starting to develop your skills a little bit more. When I started as an intern, you know, I was seeing somatic dysfunction everywhere and taking, taking forever to treat patients because I wanted to treat every little <laughs> thing, but I, it, it really took the course of my internship going into my PGY two and three years to start being more clinically relevant and, and having good clinical outcomes in terms of treating, treating patients, um, you know, uh, while also being efficient and and not over treating or or treat doing treatments that are technically correct and valid but but are not necessarily um, related to their chief complaint or or pain that they're having. Um, so yeah, okay. that yeah. So so during your residency, you learned how to be a doctor. Um, you learn how to be efficient while treating the chief complaint of the patient. Were there any techniques that you feel like you learned well or, or did you get really good at, at figuring out where key lesions were or during residency specifically? Yeah. Yeah. I during mean, residency Kirk's specifically. Well, I I I think Kirksville, even at the undergrad level, really sets you up to have, to be pretty proficient with a wide variety of techniques. Um, that being said, a, a lot of uh, there's a a lot of you, you get solid basics, but things like uh, visceral techniques, cranial techniques, um, things like that, definitely um, improved upon throughout my residency program. Um, but things like, you know, cervical HVLA, muscle energy, counterstraint, like, again, it, it's not that the technique changed between when I was an undergraduate level medical student or, or postgraduate in residency. It's that you, you learn to apply it more precisely and more effectively. But I mean, even if the steps of counterstraint or muscle energy or HVLA are the same steps, um, Okay. Yeah. That's right. I'm sorry. Did you want to add something else? No, no. I, you know, I, I was just hoping that that answered the question, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'm sure as you continue in your career, you continue learning more about musculoskeletal um, circulatory system and continuing to, to hone your skills, especially with, with the athletic community. And that leads me to my next question. At what point did you decide to do a, sports medicine fellowship and why did you make that decision? So again, I, I knew I was interested in seeing uh, it, it in a sports medicine fellowship before I applied to even residency. Um, I, I, again, sort of figuring it out as I was going, but as I was sort of considering things like orthopedics, PM and R 
family medicine to sports medicine, NMM to sports medicine. Uh, you know, I, I knew that if I went a non-surgical route, that sports medicine might be a fellowship that I wanted to pursue after that. It, it was a hard decision at, at some point because, again, this was all back before the AOA and the ACGME merged the postgraduate match program. So I, I knew that by doing a straight NMM residency program, that that would severely limit how many sports medicine fellowship programs that I could apply to that would that would consider me as an applicant because there there is no analogous NMM residency program in the allopathic world. Um, and, and that is what turned out to be the case. You know, I, I went and uh, contacted program directors and did uh, uh, audition rotations, so to speak, and things like that. But, but very few, uh, really no allopathic program would consider an NMM resident at that time. Um, and so I, I, in making the decision to do an NMM residency program, I, at some point I kind of made up my mind that even if I don't end up being able to go into, to, to complete a sports medicine fellowship, I'd rather be an NMM trained doctor and focus for three years on improving my hand skills and, and being really uh, a specialist at level of OMM rather than doing three years of family medicine just to then someday do a plus one year and then maybe a, a sports medicine fellowship on top of that. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I knew I wanted to do a, a sports medicine fellowship at the same time that I decided to apply to NMM residency programs. Um, and so how many programs could you apply to at that time that had, because it, it seems like, if you're going to do a fellowship and you're NMM trained, the fellowship, the sports medicine fellowship would have to have some kind of OMM clinic that you could work in to almost kind of pay for your fellowship. Yeah. It, so it, it, it depends a little bit. I, I think when it came to applying for fellowship programs, I, I think there were something like 10 or 12 that I that I found information about that I could apply to you know several of them I wasn't able to audition at or or you know make a rotation work that sort of thing so I, I of them there were you know some of which that I, I didn't get interviews at um but the you know again thankfully a few of them that I did interview at and thankfully one of them that uh, accepted me so um but yeah um it things are kind of changing things have changed you know where they are now and what our fellows at for example our fellowship program here at campbell do for their original specialty um things have changed now um compared to back when i was a student um you often had to have someone um uh when, uh, sorry when i was a fellow you to to you'd have to have someone trained in your subspecialty your original specialty, your primary specialty to supervise you in clinic. That rule has gone away as of, I believe, just this last year to the 2020 uh, ACGME program requirements. So um, it, it's no longer as big a limiting factor. Um, but yeah, in, in the end, the, the uh, Institute for Non-Surgical Orthopedics that I went to, Joel Stein, the program director, is NMM certified. So it, it is something that that worked out fortuitously, both in terms of how well, uh, how good a fit the program was for me, as well as 
hopefully how good a fit uh, uh, I was for the program. Um, yeah, I mean, it also seems challenging for the O&MM residents who would like to do a sports medicine residency if the director isn't, one, a DO, and, and two, it would make it much easier if they were, yeah. at least had done an O&MM fellowship to have an idea about what we do because it's such a, a niche field. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I can only speak for myself I, I, I agree. It's OMM is such a niche field that there are probably not very many OMM trained residents that are applying for sports medicine fellowship programs. There were definitely times when I was doing my research, contacting program directors and things like that, that I had to define what it is I was doing, right. Um, right. particularly for allopathic uh, colleagues, but um, but you know there e even so there'd be DO program directors that I'd reach out to and say, hey, I, I saw that you're a DO, I saw that your website says that you offer osteopathic manipulation. I am a DO resident at an NMM program. Would you consider me as an applicant? And again, got a lot of no's at that time. Uh, you know, a lot of <laughs> sorry, but no. Uh, a lot of I understand and I support you, but no. <laughs> so um, so uh, uh, things have changed recently. So uh, as of, uh, again, I, I believe even last year, the um, ONMM residents would were not included on the list of residencies for the uh, program standards for uh, sports medicine. That again has changed within the last year or so to where they can they can be accepted. Um, and I, I believe the AOA kind of pushed for that, which is you know again um, for there was a little while where I was counseling, talking to people, uh, you know, residents in ONMM residencies or people considering family medicine versus ONMM, where I said, if, if your goal is to do a sports medicine fellowship, you might, it would be easier to do that through family medicine than through ONMM. Mm -hmm. Now, at least I can say you are, you qualify, <laughs> whereas for a few <laughs> years, I, I could not say that. Uh, between right. The merger and between the changes that they made in the last year or so. Um, but again, it's, it was a pretty niche field, so I can't say there were that many residents uh, that were uh, struggling with that in the, over right. the last few years. But yeah, yeah, I'm actually in the process of applying and uh, doing auditions, reaching out, reaching out to program directors to mm -hmm. see if they would um, take a ONMM resident. So. Yeah, uh, it's something that you probably would still be a good idea to, to make some phone calls ahead of time. If, <laughs> yeah. you know, try not to waste anybody's time, so to speak. But, uh, but again, places like MSU, where there is a strong relationship, at, you know, long, it, it's not like any of those programs are new. Um, uh, and and there's, there's a fair amount of overlap between the uh, NMM, OMM departments and sports medicine Right. Um, at places like MSU, those, you know, if, if someone was interested going to a place like that where you don't have to define yourself quite as much, uh, certainly <laughs> might uh, cut some corners or, or make things sure. streamline things a little bit. But. Sure, absolutely. How do you feel like your ONMM training has enhanced your sports medicine fellowship training? So, again, I'm, I'm a little biased. I, I, couldn't imagine practicing without 
some of the OMM skills that I bring to the table, so to speak. Um, my my first practice straight out of fellowship was um, in a hospital-based practice in a small town in southwest Missouri, um, where I was in a, a hospital-based practice that with uh, four orthopedic surgeons and one allopathically trained sports medicine doc. You know, my niche that I carved out for the years that I was there was I, I was doing a lot of OMM, but I was I was also doing a lot of uh, regenerative injections, prolotherapy, PRP, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it, it, my my practice, while in the same building as uh, some of the orthopedic surgeons, um, uh, was was uh, very distinct. Uh, even my the allopathically trained sports medicine colleague, while we you know, both covered football games, his, his practice looked a lot different from mine because of the, the OMM skills and, uh, and some of the regenerative injections that I do, particularly the prolotherapy. Um, and so, you know, he, a lot of times, uh, would he prefer to see, see knees and, and things like that because he, you know, a lot of visco supplement injections, a lot of PRP injections and things like that. Whereas my bread and butter tended to be the, the non-surgical back pain that, you know, the, the, uh, the spine surgeon in town was happy to have me there because it, it gave him one more option to refer people when they were not, not going to be a good surgical candidate. So, um, so yeah, it's, I, I can't imagine practicing without it. Now I recognize there are plenty of, uh, allopathically trained, uh, docs. There are plenty of DOs that, that go into sports medicine that don't do a whole heck of a lot of OMM. You know, when I, when I look at them to me, it's as, I, 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 it'd be like cutting off an arm and, and being told to go practice. Like I, it, it's so integral to what I do both, philosophically as well as from a treatment option standpoint that I, when I, when I see, have seen, you know, in, in training and, and, you know, when I compare notes with, with other doctors, it, it is, it's such a integral part of my practice that I, it's, it's almost hard to imagine what would I do without it. Sure. And, and along the lines of your sports medicine fellowship and, and what you're doing right now, how did you become involved with the USA track and field uh, ultra runners. Yeah. So that, that was, uh, you know, just sort of a fortuitous, who do you know, and, and the opportunities that fall in your lap. Um, there was a mentor that I had in Kirksville, Missouri during my residency. Um, his name is Dr. Andrew Lovey. He is a DO uh, psychiatrist by training, but in um, he, he held on to his hand skills and in his, later years he started doing some ultra running himself so he, he kind of yeah. fell into the role of team physician for some of these again kind of niche uh ultra endurance events so he prior to me um, was the team physician for the usa uh 24-hour ultra marathon team for many years um when he kind of bowed out um uh it, it i was sort of the shoe-in to take over for him and so i've uh, served as the team physician for several of the last world championship races. Um, unfortunately, with the birth of my most recent son, I missed the deadline to apply for uh, 2023. So they've got another team physician for the race that's coming up in 2023, but I'll probably reapply for uh, the next race, which would be in 2025, um, and see if they want me back at that point. <laughs> yeah. So you have to apply every year. Yeah. It, so the, the world championship race is held every other year in this field. Um, and so, yeah, each time you have to apply, and and again, it's it's a small small field, small number of names, um, you know. Uh, so it, 
it's not something that is too big a hurdle or anything. It's just, <laughs> it is just simply a deadline that in the, in the midst of uh, my second being born, that I, that I lost track of the deadline in the next few weeks after that. So Sure. Sure. <laughs> Going back to the, uh, the psychiatrist who you took the job from, I was thinking to myself, man, he, he kind of had an unfair advantage because he knew how to play mind games with himself. He, you know, <laughs> it, it was very interesting. There, there is a very strong mental aspect to a 24 hour race. You know, a lot of, a lot of people don't, well, a lot of people aren't familiar with the fact that there are, is such a thing as an ultra marathon. Um, the, uh, the concept of a 24 hour race, most people are used to the concept of a race being, you know, a, a set distance and whoever runs, runs it in the shortest amount of time this is a set time. Whoever runs the longest distance in that time is, is the winner. It's a long time to run 24 hours. So uh, again, Dr. Lovey with his psych training would do little, you know, self hypnosis things. You know, he'd, he'd be treating someone, they'd come in and they'd be, they'd be hurting. They'd be, you know, in some of the worst pain of their life, that sort of thing. And he'd, he'd do things like say, okay, I want you to envision you know, the best run you've ever had. And I want you to remember what that feels like. And I want you to imagine your legs feel that way now and now go out and run. And then people go run a few more, <laughs> a few more miles. <laughs> so, uh, so there were, there were things that he could do with patients given his training that I, that is not, not what I could do. I am not necessarily a motivational speaker or anything, but, uh, but yeah, uh, his, his training certainly, uh, uh, allowed him to do and, and uh, facilitated him uh, treating athletes in a very unique way coming from psychiatry as opposed to sports medicine or orthopedics or something like that. Sure. And so what are some of the pathologies or dysfunctions that you're finding in these ultra runners and what and how are you treating them? Yeah. So the, the 24 hour races are uh, it's a very unique race um uh it, it depends so much on the environment um and so pathology wise you're you're seeing a lot of um uh a lot of glycopenia as they sort of uh deplete their glycogen stores uh depending on the temperature hypothermia hyperthermia sometimes hyper and hypothermia within the same 24 hours um a lot of iatrogenic hyponatremia, um, a lot of GI complaints. Um, uh, so uh, blisters, foot care, uh, stress fractures, um, uh, muscle sprains, strains, twisted ankles, stuff like that. Back pain as they're running. Um, they, they, their posture will decompensate in certain ways. And, and again, uh, one of the things that's unique to this um, event is that the runners can kind of pull over for a pit stop, so to speak, and we'll do manipulation with them during the course of the 24 hour race. And Dr. Lovey always used to say, if you give me five minutes, I'll give you 10 back. The, the idea is that particularly if early in the event, you're hurting or you're not running efficiently, if you come in for a pit stop and we can tune you up a little bit, you might run more efficiently for the rest of the time that you're on the track and various races that, you know, I, I've had a few athletes that, you know, uh, not to toot my own horn, but probably osteopathic manipulation made the difference between them placing or not placing or made the difference between, you know, team USA winning a gold or winning a silver. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very gratifying event. Osteopathic manipulation is a big part of what you do, but, but again, you're also a doctor. So you're also treating things like, uh, like I said, the hyponatremia, hypothermia, hyperthermia, uh, what have you. So, 
Yeah. That's really neat that you're involved in that and, and, and I guess kind of representing sports medicine and O&MM in, in the care of those athletes. That's pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's been a, an honor to, to, uh, to help with that again. I'm ashamed to say that I missed the deadline, <laughs> rewrite, well, which is in, uh, in, uh, uh, Chinese Taipei, but, um, I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe I can get back into it in a, in a future year. Um, once, <laughs> once the, uh, uh, craziness of, uh, having young children, hopefully will settle down. Yeah. Some I mean, that, that, that's a pretty good excuse, you yeah. know, having a child be born, yeah. your own child, you know, that's, uh, it, that's that I, I, I think it's understandable, but a deadline's a deadline, you know, so <laughs> true, true. Uh, but yeah, hopefully the team knows that if they need me, they can, they can always call me, but they, they have another physician that's very well trained that I, that I think they'll do quite well. Um, sure, hopefully. Sure. And again, team USA has done quite well at those events over the past few years, you know, uh, I think they're in good hands. So yeah, that's great, Dr. Han. I want to be respectful of your time. I know you have a wife and kids that you probably want to get back to. I do want to ask you one question before we end, and the question is your advice for osteopathic medical students who may be going to the OMM lab and lecture, kind of dragging their feet. There kind of seems to be this eighty twenty rule. You have 20% of the class, 10% of which are absolutely gung-ho about ONMM, which was you and myself in medical school. You have the other 10% of the 20 that are in their heads thinking, I never, ever will use OMT. I don't want to be here. And then you have kind of the, the 80% of the class that's, they're open to learning about it and, and still a little curious. What advice do you have for these osteopathic medical students? You know, I, it's a hard question to answer. If, if I had the solution to changing those ratios, uh, again, I, I, I think that's something that many people, many smarter than I, have, have tried to address over the years when it comes to osteopathic education. Um, my, at the individual level, the, the individual student coming up to me, my advice is mostly along something along the lines of keep an open mind like you you again so much of 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 medicine you learn as you go so you know keep an open mind kind of see see how things go as you go through your training um and and be open-minded to incorporating it um the other thing though is just you know follow your passion to a certain extent some of those students if if you know you're going to be a radiologist to a certain extent, it makes sense that a radiologist is not going to do a whole lot of OMM in their practice. Um, if you if you want to do pathology, it, it, it makes sense that you're not going to be doing a lot of OMM. There are lots of other professions where one could do OMM, but uh, but again, it, it, in the end, it's up to the individual um, students and eventually doctors to what extent they want to incorporate certain skills techniques into their practice and you know i i tell people uh, again i'm i am not a surgeon at this point i don't do surgery that doesn't mean that i don't have a good appreciation for surgical cases and if if someone needs a knee replacement hip replacement something like that i refer them to the surgeon even if i don't do the surgery it can be the same thing with omm um 
in the sense that it is a procedure for the 10% of our class that are super interested in OMM. Those are my favorite people to teach. I'm, I'm happy to feed them as much as they are hungry um, and, and help bring them their skills to the next level for the next 10 or 20% that are interested, but on the fence, you know, I, I kind of try to show them clinically relevant outcomes, like show them what one can achieve with OMM, show them um, how one can incorporate OMT into their practice so that they can make decisions about what they want to do. Um, you know, for the next, oh, 50, 60, 70% or so that might decide might decide that OMM is not necessarily what they want to include in their practice. I, I don't think that necessarily makes people horrible people or, or bad DOs necessarily. Um, but, but especially in, in a primary care field, something like family medicine, there will always be things that you feel comfortable with and things that you don't feel comfortable with. So, you know, I, I tell students, residents, if, if you're going into family medicine, you might do skin biopsies, for example, but you may draw the line at cutting lesions off of a 16 year old girl's face the day before prom. Um, you, you might go to a program where they teach you to do um, vaginal deliveries, but you might draw the line at C-sections. You might go to a place that teaches you to do upper and lower endoscopies, but you might not uh, uh, treat every single colon cancer. Um, it, 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 what you do is going to depend on what you want to do in your practice and the skills that you seek out and, and what you get exposed to during your residency, um, for, for the, for the students making those decisions, you know, again, keep an open mind. And, and if this is something you want to pursue, pursue it and and again put yourself out there be be motivated be um uh uh enthusiastic to to make those educational opportunities happen keep your osteopathic philosophy and thinking um energized if you will um but again in the end if, if this is something that people decide they don't want to do at that point it's okay to to focus on the philosophy and then the same as you'd refer someone if they needed a service that you don't do in any other field you might keep in mind what osteopathic manipulation can achieve and and the clinical indications for it and then you might have a do that you know does more or different manipulation than you and and refer when appropriate um so yeah that's great that's great dr han i really i appreciate that um no one to refer be open to learning and uh, it's not for everybody. Absolutely. It's yeah. not for everybody. Just like some people, I mean, love cardiology. Other people can't stand it. You yeah. know? Um, and, and luckily there's sort of a, a role for all of us. There's so much medicine and so much, so much right. need uh, in this country, in this world that, you know, that again, you can be a good, good osteopathic physician. You can be a good physician, um, that's, that's doing good for your patients, even if OMM is not what you decide to do. I, I think it's one of my favorite tools in my toolbox. And when I, when I'm planning my life out, 
doing OMM is something that I like to do. It, it keeps me moving. It keeps me engaged. It, it puts me little, literally physically in touch with my patients. Um, but again, it, 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 it doesn't have to be for everybody. When, when students and residents are on rotations, you know, I, I tell people, you, you're going to learn what you want to do. You're also going to learn what you don't want to do. And both are valuable lessons. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much. Let's, we'll end with that. Thank you for your time, sharing your story and your career and clinical experience. It's been, it's been very enlightening. So thanks so much. Yeah. Happy to be here again. Pleasure. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Han. You have a wonderful evening. Thank you. You as well. Thank you. Bye. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Han and learned some osteopathic pearls. We thank him for his time and greatly appreciate him sharing his journey. As always, leave us a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts, and please share the podcast with your family and friends. We will see you in the next episode of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine Podcast.